Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Dr. Fiona McAndrew is a clinical counselor and performance coach working internationally online and in person in central Helsinki. She holds a PhD from the University of Melbourne in music performance psychology and a Master of Counseling in Cognitive Behavioral Therapy from Monash University, Melbourne, which she integrates with a Jungian deaf psychology perspective to help a range of clients in the corporate world, elite athletics, professional performing arts, music, film, and advertising. This experience is underpinned by training and publication as a research psychologist and professional performing arts training at the Elite Opera Chorus at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. She is also a trained creativity coach and holds her certificate to administer the personality test Myers-Briggs Type Indicator. Fiona's special interest in positive psychology and performance grew out of her 25-year career as an international opera singer, performing solo roles to critical acclaim for major festivals, opera houses, and film. Until 2020, she was deputy head of opera and classical voice, as well as a lecturer in musical theater at the well-known Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, and is a frequent performance consultant at the conservatoire and universities in New Zealand, Australia, and the UK. All right, Dr. Fiona McAndrew, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Excellent. Well, I know you just moved to Finland, so I'm very curious, having spent some time in Finland, how you're doing, how the adjustment is going, how dark is it at this particular time? Well, as you can see, there's a streak of light coming in my window and it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, So I'm doing pretty well, but I'm saying that not having experienced a Finnish winter. I've experienced North American winters, but I think they're cold and snowy without the dark. So it should be interesting. I guess the saving grace is that there's a sauna around every corner. Uh, yeah, <laughs> next to this room. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, such a, such an important part of getting through uh, winter as far as I'm concerned. Well, Fiona, it's so great to have you here for what I hope is going to be a really interesting, eclectic discussion around, God, peak experience, flow, working with creative types. And if we're lucky, maybe even a little Jung, that would be such a nice thing to talk about. Music, midlife crisis, what's not to like? There's so many things in here that we could... Uh, that we could drill into. And I also just want to say thanks to my sister-in-law, Christina Matula, who, by the way, is a very talented author of fantastic children's books for introducing us. She thought you would be someone really interesting to talk to, and I, and I totally agree. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So why don't we jump in? Fiona, you have such an interesting background, which was hinted at at the bio the audience would have just heard in, in the voiceover. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about your transition from opera to experimental psychology to mental health and performance and perhaps if you see a thread running through all of them or through all of you that has you know caused you to end up at this particular waypoint in life yeah um well i think i've there's a thread or at least a story now looking looking back at it but i guess it started as um being a singer in in my irish family we were living in ireland and my maternal grandmother was from a family of traditional musicians from Donegal. And she sort of, she was quite a cross woman, um, but not to me because I was the designated bard in my family. And I think there often is one in, particularly in Irish families. And, uh, but then when I was eight, the family moved to Australia. 
um, to Western Australia. And there I played the violin and various other instruments and took singing lessons from the age of 12, classical singing lessons. Um, I went to university and did a four-year experimental psych degree. Uh, it was a very behaviorist department at that time. Um, we did a lot of Karl Popper, a lot of Karl Popper, which was good for my um, kind of creative brain, uh, good grounding. I published some research in the British Journal of Psychology at the time, and I was experimentally inducing uh, hypnagogic imagery in students, um, and they were matched on two types of personalities, habitual um, internalizers versus you know public and private self-consciousness. We mixed a few variables up. And it sort of came out of the research that was very much banned then from um, the, about mescaline and um, that had been done in the 60s. And it was, I was the last uh, supervisee of uh, a wonderful professor of psychology called Alan Richardson, sadly now dead, but he um, he said, you know, I really want to do this at the end of my career. Can we, can we, you know, can we find a way of doing this experimentally, even though we're looking at the phenomenology of, of the experience? Um, so we did, but I I have to say, I felt even then the kind of limits of uh, the empirical objectivist view, look, uh, you know, looking at um, something to do with people. And I was interested in that. I was more artistic, more musical, and but it was a, you know, it was a brilliant training for my mind. And then, in the middle of college, my father died, and I had a real um, road to Damascus moment, where I, I literally had, I was looking at a crack in the road, I was right into my lab one day, and I had this insight. If I had two lives I would do psychology first and then I would do music but I don't I have one so I knew at that point I was going to leave that that kind of um life and and luckily my when I told my professor this he said before the prison doors close leave just go his wife was an actress so I was really very kind of him and so I moved back to Ireland um because my relatives were there and I studied singing with a wonderful teacher Veronica Dunn there and I eventually won a scholarship to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama to do their opera course, which is a, a two-year professional um, training. Um, and I had a singing career after that, working eventually at, at a very high level um, for about well over 15 years, really, um, all over the world. I met my husband in London as well, um, Thomas de Mali Burgess, who's a, a director. Uh, and then we had another enforced move away from Europe because of the global financial crash. At that stage, we were in Dublin and I was you know, traveling to New York and to, into Europe to work. Um, and we decided to go back to Australia where I was lucky enough to get a, an Australian postgraduate award from the University of Western Australia to do a PhD. And that's where I wanted to combine what I'd learned as a performer in all those years back, link it back to psychology. Um, following this move, I had a teaching career at Performing Arts Conservatoire, um, teaching young singers. And that's sort of once or twice a week for three or four years of their lives. It really kind of paralleled um, almost like a therapeutic role. I, I didn't think so at the time, um, but, you know, complete with its transference and counter-transference. Um, and after that, I went back to do a master's in counselling. Um, and I guess if there was a common thread, it's a story that alternates between music and psychology and eventually comes together with the ability to help people in those two areas 
And I, and, but the driver is a bit different from the story is kind of looking back, but the driver for those things, I would say, is an interest in inner worlds, in sort of transitional spaces, hypnagogic spaces when I was um, doing research, um, performing states, I was really interested in the, in the mindset you go into, and then finally kind of co-creating these states with young artists and clients. So yeah, finding that, finding that space between the arts and science. I have a couple of questions for you. I know many folks who do many types of things for a living. Opera singer is not one of them. I'd love to hear what a day in the life of a professional opera singer is like. You know, the, we like to focus on the podcast about just the human experience in general. So that sounds like it could be. Well, I'm very curious about what what that's like. What does that entail? I remember a very wise man saying when I said, I'm, "That's it. I'm going to be an opera singer. That's it. I'm you know I'm ded- dedicating my life to this." And he said, "Welcome to." He was a very high flying businessman. He says. Welcome to the uh, tightrope. And if you look down, there's no safety net. And I remember thinking that was a very odd thing to say to a young, you know, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed uh, person. And uh, I think that's to an extent true. It's a lot of living on your wits. It's um, draining. Uh, it's neurotically draining because you're, you know, often very in very nervous situations, and yet you're called upon to be yourself in a situation that is clearly not yourself because you're often taking on characters. Um, but it gives back so much more, you know, apart from learning ancient history and languages and how to calm yourself down and how to breathe and how to uh, express yourself it, it'll, and how to be on time. That was a big thing. Um, it it gives you it gives it gives as much as it uh, takes from the other side, but from the kind of vicissitudes of the career, and they are great. They're they're ever increasingly great for young singers because of the decline of sort of Western art music and opera in particular, and the decline of opportunities. I'm sure we're going to get into all kinds of things related to this, but just a question that came to mind as you were outlining this. I really think that music is so powerful with respect to evoking emotion. And for many people, it's often the primary way with, with which they can access their, their emotions. It, I think it really appeals to that nonlinear right brain kind of way of processing very gestaltish uh, in, in some way. What are your thoughts on music and emotions and, and sort of its ability to penetrate our soul, if I can be a little bit loose with some of that language? Yeah, totally. Oh, you can with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, it, 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 does, it occupies the world of emotion, but also the world of the symbolic, but both those things, I think, um, because it's abstract. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it modulates all our the chemicals in our brain, dopamine, serotonin, uh, norepinephrine, and in the right combination, they can come together and you can, be, you can really have quite ecstatic experiences, but even just to change mood, to break state. And it, um, you know, really the old saying that music takes over or begins where words run out. Now that's kind of interesting in singing because we use text all the time. We're very infrequently called upon to sing things that don't have words. And even when they're vocalises, we think in a linguistic sense, but they're not words and text. I'm so interested in what happens between those two worlds. If it's not too uh, gauche to do so, I want to sprinkle in a quote from, from Bono who 
I love you too as much as the next guy. Bono can be a little much at times, but I, I took this quote from his book. I was reading his book and coincidentally, you and I were talking about having this chat. I was like, oh, I want to run this quote past you and get a sense of what you're talking about because I think it might actually tie in funny enough to what you're just mentioning. So here's the quote in full. Opera singers are not simply athletes whose high jump is to a top C or circus performers whose freakish genetic advantage we applaud. Opera singers are above all communicators of emotion, empathy, Making unbelievable tales understandable to the listener is their gift because there's no such thing as an ordinary life for anyone. So opera singers' voices are made better for the life they've lived. The more life they've lived, the better the voice. No matter how confusing the life, the human voice reveals the emotional contours and the spiritual landscape, not just of the music, but of the singer who takes you through it. This is what opera is about. This is what Luciano Pavarotti was about. Within a few takes, it was evident that Luciano Pavarotti had lived enough life to sing for people who were losing a grip on theirs. He made the surreal sorrow of Sarajevo understandable. That's just so beautiful. That's quite unexpected um, from from Bono. I think also um, what's missing there is he's is a beautiful singer. Um doing the same thing, maybe not in opera, not in theatre. Um, slightly highfalutin claims about opera as an art form, but I don't think he means that. I think he means the human voice singing complex material, whatever that is, whether it's a folk song. Um, and I think it, it absolutely nails it. It's absolutely um, the conduit between the worlds of emotion and and a, a sort of a, a transcendence from our human or, or a reflection on our condition, on our human condition. And I think increasingly we need um, people, we need the storytellers, we need the lyrical theatre makers to sew up and and point us in the right direction because we're, boy, are we heading down a kind of strange, um, materialistic, uh, objectivist track these days. And maybe that's my age talking, but, but you know, I, that's, that's why I'm so enthusiastic. And also Pavarotti would be my number one tenor, not because of his greatness and intellectual prowess as an artist or acting ability on stage, less so, but just the sheer beauty, you know, you know, like Joan Sutherland, sort of slight freaks of nature in a good way. Yeah, it feels like we're living in a very disintegrated world, if I can say it that way. We're not yeah. integrated yeah, as yeah. people. We, we, we have these sort of fragmented existences as, as selves. And uh, just to touch back on what you're saying a second ago, I think you two in particular, they're so, Bono is so earnest in his, the emotionality that he puts into his vocal delivery. If it was any other band or any other singer, I think they get laughed out of the arena, right? Like the, the it would almost be so yep. corny as to be just so cringy, yep. but there's mm. an authenticity and a resonance that I think that gets poured into the performance that sucks you in. And uh, I mean, I've, I've seen you two many times in many arenas and uh, you just see all the you know, 20, 30,000 people moving as one organism to the emotionality that's being put out there. It's quite, quite something to experience if you haven't. It is quite something. And it just reminds us of that kind of um, empathy uh, audiences have. That, that I think as performers, we get more from the audience than the audience gets from us sometimes. And they just they don't know that. I don't think there is a fundamental difference between audiences and performers. Um, that's not my thoughts, actually. That's when I think about it, that's Peter Brook talking about theatre. Um, but I think, you know, we, we, um, we induce states in the audience, but they also, we're, we're very receptive to what they're, what they're giving back to us. 
So I think that's a great segue to talk about some of the work in your thesis that you were so nice enough to send a summary to me of. I'd love to, to hear a little bit more about that. Perhaps you want to, or if you wouldn't mind walking the audience a little bit through what the goal of that research was, what you found, and maybe just expand on some of the, the themes that you just brought in. Yeah, well, it, I was I was looking at the sort of phenomenology of, um, I hope I can remember it now because I finished it in 2018, um, of pig states. Um, so I was studying professional opera singers in performance. Um, and and it really, this idea, interest in peak experience came from my own most significant uh, experience as an artist um, on stage. And I define peak and flow states, but peak experience in particular, um, after Maslow, um, Abraham Maslow, and, and he talks about uh, moments of highest happiness and fulfillment. And they're usually unbidden experiences and revelatory, um, and they kind of induce a, a feeling of oneness with the world or connectedness. So music and stage performance are quite reliable triggers of these states, as are psychedelics, natural beauty, sex, love. Um, flow, on the other hand, sort of a related state um, described and coined by Csikszentmihalyi in the 1970s, um, describes states of absorption, which may overlap, but they don't necessarily need to include these more numinous elements um, of a peak experience. And they they occur when the qualities of you, you high skill and high absorption in a task, often a creative task, when they meet. Um, and I think as singers, we move between, between the two, particularly depending on whether we're in the rehearsal stage or on the performance state. Um, I, I can give an example of a peak, my own peak experience, if it's not too self-indulgent, not, not for any reason except just to illustrate. Please indulge. I'd love to hear about it. Okay. So um the one that I that sort of kickstarted the idea of the thesis was um I was doing a role for the third time. So that's a great privilege to be in. Um and it was in Germany in Dresden. And I it was the second performance and uh, we'd American American Swiss conductor and he says come on let's really let's really mind this we're the only English speakers here let's really get something out of this text I said yeah okay he says I want you to uh, sing it like Streisand I said you know I can't do that <laughs> it's not really my voice type but okay I, I kind of get what you mean so uh, I remember walking um, across a giant stage um, uh, which often malfunctioned but not often you know occasionally I should say and I suddenly became aware of a shift in how seconds were passing um, as I sang. And I was, but it felt very pleasant and unselfconscious. And I was aware of a huge surge of empathy for my colleague to whom I was singing. And that she was both herself and her character. Um, I was both myself, I wasn't anywhere else. I was, I was in touch with my own reality, but just felt better. She felt like my younger sister. I have a younger sister, Claire. Um, she felt like my younger sister, uh, and yes, she was herself and in character. So I'm trying to describe the ineffable here, but um, so bear with me. Of course, um, yeah. And then a, a sense of overwhelming love and calm came over me. And yet I was still in character, singing and, uh, and um in time and meter with the orchestra miles away, but I felt really at one with the orchestra, even though they were quite a distance away, so far that they have to have a prompter at the front um, to tell me, you know, when the next beat is. Um, and that state began and it ended. And after I left 
the stage and went home from the theatre that night. I had a real renewal in my faith of, of faith in music and in opera and in people. And, and if it's not too sort of grand to say in the, the redemptive power of love, the opera was, of course, Dead Man Walking um, by Jake Heggie and Terence McNally, um, who very sadly we lost, I think, during COVID. Um, it was the most beautiful text about forgiveness. And that was a very, it was a very different feeling from the feeling of, yeah, I nailed that performance, that I sang so well. You know, it wasn't an ego um, trip by any manner of means. It was sublimely beautiful and yet totally in contact with reality. What factors do you think might have come together to precipitate that particular experience at that particular time? What were the active ingredients in that? Could you ever replicate it? Or do you think it was just sort of a one in a million moment that happened to strike you and you're just really grateful that it, you, you, you know, that you came into contact with that? Oh, Pete, you ask all the hard questions. Um, there's a lot of questions in there and it's, and some of them I can answer. I don't think I could replicate it and be sure it would happen again. That's the answer to that one. However, I could put myself in a similar position. But in the background in my um, personal life, I was dealing with an opera about forgiveness and there was an issue going on, not to me personally, but it, within uh, people I, I knew and cared about very much. And so it was a, uh, a huge um, revisiting of words, which I thought I understood the first and second time I'd sung this role. This was the third time. And that's important. I think this overlearning, and that was quite a hard score to overlearn because there's a lot of notes, and a lot of different time signature changes, um, you know, and a big, big, you know, it's very, very orchestrated, shall we say. So that's, that's, um, that overlearning seems to be key. And actually some, one of the things that was borne out in my later research with other singers, that knowing it inside out, upside down, back to front means that you're freed from those lower level um, external constraints. Um, I think singers have this flexible executive functioning when something goes wrong, the door doesn't open, as happened to me once, um, an electronic door. So I just had to walk off the set and walk on the stage and just keep singing. And you've got to, one part has to be going on while there's this foregrounding and backgrounding, you're going, you know, able to, have to take place. So it's a flexible functioning um, rather than, and I, you learn that as a singer when you're particularly in a place like the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and the, and the drama being a really big part of it, how to not be thrown by um, mistakes. And that's a, that's a, that's a learned habit. Just as a sort of random question, I had the good fortune of seeing Hamilton a couple of times here in North America. Wonderful, wonderful production. I had this, I had this experience of like, I wonder what they're, what's the experience of delivering that? What are they thinking about what they're going to have for dinner after the, uh, after the show? So as someone who's been there, done that on stage, like what would be some of the more bizarre things that might come into your mind that the audience may not sort of intuit as far as what would be happening mid performance? Ah, uh, well, classical singers, you know, because we're probably more neurotic, probably not our dinners, um, probably, <laughs> you know, the tickle in our throat we had that day that, you know, they, well, and actually in that particular performance, I, one of my daughters was very young at the time and I try as I might, I managed to pick up a cold. So I was really dealing with them. Um, with, you know, shall we, can I say this on your podcast, snot issues. <laughs> <laughs> So, which wouldn't have been visible to the audience, but it would have been to your colleagues. So, you know, really low-level, visceral, 
blood and gut stuff um, of the singer. You know, it's it's hot. Where's the light? Um, you know, why is he taking this tempo when we agreed on agreed on the other tempo? That's the conductor. Yep. You know, why is that? Wow, the clarinet just played the wrong note. That's amazing. Um, so you know, there's there's lots of there's sort of stream of consciousness, external things going on. Usually, by the time you've walked into the light, literally walked into the light and and figuratively. Um, you have left those things. You have entered another space. It's not. It's not possible. And actually, um, I remember uh, singing um, in Germany for the first time and sitting in my dressing room. Actually, it was that performance and hearing the um, the overture beforehand. And in most overtures, I would go. I go right. It's it kind of gets you going, you know. It kind of gets gets the audience going, quietens them down, and really starts to pull them in before the the lights go down and the curtain goes up. And that same thing is happening backstage with the singer in their dressing room. You know, they're nervous, nervous, nervous all day, having having looked after themselves. And but with Dead Man Walking, it was a creepy, mysterious, deeply unsettling overture as it should be. Um, so it wasn't possible to get that vicarious sort of a lift from from the music itself. And then on the tannoy came a voice, Frau Macandrew zu Bühne bitte. I thought, oh my God, it's the voice of God and I'm going to the guillotine. That's it. My life is over. It's come to this. This is where it ends. Absolute doom and gloom thinking. And almost as soon as that voice started to talk, another voice, and it was weirdly a, a fragment of Primo Levi's book, if not now, when, if not me, then who, which is, I know it's from a sacred text, but, um, and that stunned me. It was a sort of an equal balancing of uh, bad angel, good angel. So I went with good angel and I thought, okay. So in that instance, text saved me. Normally it was the music itself. Normally I turn on music and my state just changes. And I think if you've been around music all your life you're that's a very quick transition oh, it's available to everybody of course it is i think it's you know it's a universal uh, need and 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 resource but yeah in that case it was text the poetry of the text and the meaning if you just wanted to expand on your thesis a little bit you, you've outlined your personal experience how were you able to generalize that aspect of your experience to you know putting some contours around this phenomenon that might ap- apply you know broadly yeah, well, I, I did a sort of series of really in-depth interviews with a whole lot of uh, elite singers about um, just to, to find out the the nature of their peak experiences and what function they they played in their careers. Um, and I analysed those. I won't go into the whole detail of it. And that was the first part. And this, the second part of the thesis was a series of um, specially staged productions for one woman. And I chose the venue to represent different resonances of the works being presented. For example, one of the works was La Voix Humaine by Francis Poulenc, um, based on Cocteau's play. And that's about a woman suiciding. On, well, I don't know if she suicides, but it's open-ended. But she's a, it's a one-sided telephone conversation breaking up with her lover. Um, and we chose to set that in a hotel. She's in a hotel room presumably having this, we set, chose to set it in a hotel room with the audiences in the room with us. And the pianist, uh, it looked like the music was coming from a speaker, which she turns on at the beginning of the production, but he, in fact, the pianist was secreted in the bathroom. Um, and uh, we were having to communicate uh, non-visually 
about when the next queue was. Um, and that was a really powerful, that was a really powerful experience because um, the audience were immersed in the set. But the funny thing is, the kind of paradox is that I, they had come paid to hear a singer sing, but I was getting to hear them breathe, see them cry. Um, it was, you know, it's a very intense work. So that was one, that was one opera. And another opera was um, uh, Darius Mio's Medea, um, the Medea myth. And we set that in the grounds of a former asylum, um, now an arts centre in Australia. And wow, that had some ghosts. Um, so, you know, so it was the resident. So we looked at that and we we, we tr tricked around with um, the proximity of the audience. Um, anyway, to cut a very very long six year story short, um, the kind of findings, if I generalize them, um, if I generalize them, were around the shared nature of consciousness with an audience. The mechanism of text, character, and music when incorporated in the singer, the sort of interactive effect of those that allow the peak experience often to happen. And what the peak experience actually allowed in me and in other singers that I spoke with was this resolution of impossible dichotomies. So what was... Um, I could feel great love from the character of Medea because even though she was killing her children, had killed her children at the stage, and yet at the moment of that I felt the greatest love. So these irreconcilable things, things that are irreconcilable in normal life, become we're able to tolerate this ambiguity. In ambiguity, um, you know, feeling great empathy for a character who's suiciding and who's you know in many ways a very flawed character. So yeah. The, um, that's a that's a sort of talking about the um, the things that came out from the thesis. Was there any feedback from the audience that you integrated? Were there any kind of qualitative interviews or getting a sense of what their what their experience was? Yeah, although I wasn't really looking at the audience, there was enough to do with with the phenomenological um, uh, looking at the experience of, of the singer and singers in the other part of the um, thing. But yes. Um, <laughs> going back to the human voice again, on the very first night, it was um, it was Australia Day, so called in Australia on the twenty sixth of January, and uh, a critic had come along unbeknownst to me, and he was sitting. Well, there was only a couple of rows, and uh, as part of this performance, the character is cooking her last meal. She's drinking wine, not well, actually wine, and chugging the you know half a bottle of tamazepam throughout the forty five minutes of the opera while singing and on the telephone in a sort of slightly demented, distracted, dissonant score. Um, and at one stage I turn on the frying pan and I leave it on and I put a, a steak, a fillet steak on the frying pan. So the audience is actually smelling the smells. So they're going through the same thing and they're going, is this, so it's more than television. They're inside the action and still they're, they're um, behaving like audience. I'm not looking at them. So I haven't broken the fourth wall in that sense. Um, but the critic, in a different mindset, thought I must have forgotten the steak, so hopped up out of his chair just as I was leaning back and uh, having a semi-faint and singing away, <laughs> and turns the steak over for me. <laughs> so suddenly I'm pulled from my state of reverie and singing and go, okay, what do I do with this? Because the next bit of the action, I have to do this, I have to do that, what am I going to do? And 
And how do I not show annoyance at this close range? Because they can read every single um, breath and an eyebrow lift. Um, I, I was able to do that, but it was it was really he he very kindly wrote it up in his critique afterwards, and you know, it, and that was that thing of, of immersive uh, opera. It wasn't really done so much. We don't get to hear that at close range. It, it's quite a lot. I of course scaled everything down. Um, so the nuances became greater, uh, vocal nuances and timbre becomes greater. Now, of course, the audience for this podcast has a lot of clinicians in it. I'm wondering if there's any parallels between what you found as far as, you know, leveraging shared consciousness or the power of that in terms of sitting with irreconcilable ideas. Is there any parallel to that in the therapeutic process uh, in your mind? Is there anything we can learn or pull from that particular lens to enhance the therapeutic experience for for one or both parties? I think so. I, I mean, this idea of reverie, being in a, a state of reverie, I try with my own clients just to take some time to, I'm sure everyone does this in their own way, um, to take some time and regulate my own breathing and think about where I'm, where I'm at and where I may go. But but reverie in the sense of is beyond uh, Wilfred Bion, who's, who's, who talks about starting every session without memory, desire, or understanding. It's a kind of, you know, the antidote to, well, my overweening cognition for one, um, or or you know, any other intrusive thing, or my or my countertransference if you know if a client doesn't like music or you know is very uh, is a performer who really doesn't talk about performing anymore, you know. So I don't rush in. And I think that's really helpful. That creates a space, a bit like going back to Peter Brook again, the great drama theorist and director. And he wrote the book called The Empty Space in the 1960s. It's just so worth reading by clinicians. Um, you know, it's it's it creates that space for things to happen, the space in between. One of the reasons I call my practice idir. Um, creative counseling is because it idir is um well, it's also a name, but it's um it's the Irish for uh between, between two things. Um so the space between uh the therapist and the client, the space between the performers, the words in the text, the space between the performer and the audience, the space between, to paraphrase uh, Victor Frankel or was it Stephen Covey, the space between stimulus and response. Um, you know, we, we get to choose our response. <laughs> Um, or at least explore. So from that point of view, I think absolutely, there's an awful lot that the theatre has taught me and um, a reverence for not just this positivist um, view that that what we see and what, uh, what the client brings is all, and not to be afraid, actually, of the dark in yourself and in clients, yeah, I really appreciated what you had to say about approaching the therapeutic space. Really, I, the way I translated it is without an agenda. You know, I, th- I think those those, th- those three parameters that you you had outlined, I can't recall them exactly off the top of my head. But yeah, coming in without an agenda, uh, although that would be very antithetical to the CBT, <laughs> where they're literally you start the session with an agenda. But I think we know what we're talking about here, like an emotional agenda of some of some kind. Well, being being prepared to be surprised, like you have to be in the theater. So we in the theater, it's going to start at. Uh, 7.30 and it's going to finish at whatever, 10.30. We know the acts, we know the notes, we know our roles, we, we deliver our lines. 
And yet there is so much spontaneity. So many things happen in any one night. It's alive in the moment of creation. And I think if creativity isn't in the, um, and I don't mean getting too creative um, with with what we're doing, but, um, and it's, you know, I I worked with people, not just uh, creatives. I do work largely with creatives and performers, but also with um, people who don't think they're creative and would like to be a bit more creative. Um, You know, so I, I think it's, also listening that's another thing I, I guess I brought in from the from from performing listening to the timbre of people's voice the tone the speed listening to the silence you're listening what what's that about what's what are my own silences and um, changes in you know pitch frequency of course and it, and the kind of spontaneous eruptions of, of things that happen um you know bits Things they'll say wrong, things they'll say little bits, fragments of songs or rhymes or memories or things they'll offer up. Um, yeah, I guess that's all. That's all part of listening as much as without agenda, as much as I can. One thing I really like to explore on the podcast are the evolutionary origins of some of the psychological phenomenon that we experience, even the really unpleasant ones. One that comes to mind that's a little bit related, perhaps, to what we're talking about is bipolar disorder. And some people have had this hypothesis that the the mania that accompanies bipolar disorder is this marshalling of an extreme amount of psychological and physiological resources to take advantage of a time-limited opportunity of some kind. Perhaps like if you're island hopping, you know, say in the South Pacific and you need to get from one place to another and, you know, the sleep is not an option, you marshal all of these resources, absolute optimism, a sense of vision that gets you from point A to point B, otherwise you might die, right? So it's this, might be delusional, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's your best shot if you're out in the middle of the ocean kind of thing. Do you have a sense, Fiona, of the evolutionary origins or maybe significance of peak experience? Well, I was talking to my brother about this. He's a psychiatrist. And he said, oh, surely it's a it's a co-opted spandrel. Well, once I looked up what a spandrel was, because I thought that was something in the building, um, it's something to do with evolutionary biology. Uh, just a reason that we, I mean, we sing because we can sing. We developed, you know, our larynxes dropped and we became bipeds and um so a little bit like that, we have peak experiences because we can. But I, I think the imaginative function must surely serve a an, an evolutionary um, uh, reason. It must keep us safe. You know, if we can imagine danger, um, we can sense. You know, that there that's you know where and, and this sort of coming together of of uh, sense intelligence as well as as well as imagination. Um, and of course, we're little attachment creatures you know, that um, exists to calm each other down. I know that's my job uh, to a great extent in the theatre. I have to calm myself down first, and then I have to help co-regulate the breathing of the audience, particularly if it's in a like a concert situation where you can see the audience and you, you have the, um, the help of, of the mise-en-scene and the character. And I think to an extent it's my job as a clinician because, you know, we need to be in, we need to be connected in different parts of the, you know, in different parts of, you know, form and stage again, but um, metaphor, but but we need, we need to be connected. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is I think therapy in its finest form is some kind of exercise in radical truth seeking to the extent possible, right? And, and knowing that's an unfolding process and what feels, you know, patently true today will be false tomorrow and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's an iterative process, but I'm always looking for, I think, and I, I take this from depth psychology, I think, 
we're looking for signs or indications that we're onto something as far as the expression of our true self goes, or looking for, you know, like a compass to guide us forward. Is there something we can take from a peak experience that gives us a sense of where that compass is or where we need to go deeper or where we need to uh, explore further? Yeah, I think I kind of, I think it's sort of um, not so much peak experience, but because uh, we know that performers of any kind, particularly league performers, experience more peak experiences. They're also, they're kind of looking at the darker places um, and they have this integration of light and dark, to use those terms. And they do it kind of by proxy all the time because we get to inhabit states of grief, murder, psychosis, betrayal, um, even though we're, you know, we're not actually experiencing those things again in performance. It's very important that we don't. Um, we find them in rehearsal, um, sort of touch the heart of the matter and the character, become that character, and then we ease off. Uh, I once played the character Jackie O, and I think for about a year afterwards, whenever there was anything about um, JFK, I'd go, I'd get a little, as if it was my husband. <laughs> that's slightly, that's slightly um, not quite what we're after, but you know. There, so what I'm saying is, we don't completely separate ourselves in performance, but we allow what we have, a, what we have discovered about the character to come through us in the in the performance, so that you know we're we're in that state that's that's not vicariously not feeling the emotion again, because we would wear ourselves out, and the you know people like Carlos did wear themselves out, re-experiencing that that on stage all the time. It must be such an interesting experience in a sense, sort of trying on identities ever so briefly, you know, even in the course of a rehearsal and perhaps some of it sticks to you like in, a, in the best possible way. It's like, okay, yeah. I can see some of that, some of that in me. That's really interesting. What do I want to do with that? How do I integrate that into my, into my sense of self? Because I don't think many of us walk through those kind of shoes in a day-to-day basis. We're so defended, so wrapped up in our own ego that we don't want to explore. We don't have permission to explore those darker elements but doing it vicariously, you know, might might be yeah. almost strikes me there could be a therapeutic sort of intervention around that. Yep, <laughs> well, that's the conclusion I came <laughs> okay. to. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure there is a and and I think it's um, I think it's yeah I think you said it just really well. I couldn't I couldn't say it better. Speaking of interventions, you know, working I know you work with many folks beyond creative types, but what are some of the core interventions that you do find yourself using? Uh, with artists, musicians, folks in advertising, you know, again, loosely speaking, creative types, what do they respond to? What do you find is effective within that particular group? Well, I would say that they're all different. Um, you know, personality traits and, and types are, are, are different. So I uh, offer them the MBTI, um, the Myers-Briggs type indicator to do, not from the point of, of um, yeah, just, just so we can work in the knowledge of their, particularly their inferior function, usually what bothers us is the stuff that we uh, isn't in our conscious awareness, which is why uh, recording dreams, songs, music, just taking a note of those things, spontaneities is so powerful, particularly for creative types, because they're very they're very high on openness. I'd say that that's a unifying. Some are more neurotic, some are more tightly wired. Some are really cool cats and they need more more energy. So it really depends what they've chosen as their sort of metier, of their, as, their, as their art form. Um, almost invariably all respond to that kind of Rogerian warmth, um, um, you know, rapport. I think that's the sine qua non 
I know it's, it's a cliche to say, but that, you know, that again, that's connection, um, a genuine connection. It's not a connection without boundaries. You know, they need to know that, that someone's driving the, the taxi, but what emerges from myself in the session, not, not you know, taking a note of it and not necessarily sharing with the client, at least not then, and processing that. And I think uh, I'm going to make a big plug for music here because I think it's really the un. It's the sort of poor cousin in the uh, psychotherapeutic world, um, you know, in terms of its its symbolic function. I think it's, and even Carl Jung wasn't, he was a little bit ambiguous about it. He, I think he, by the end of his life, thought it should be part of every analytic encounter, but, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't go there. More of a visualizer, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> and of course I do, we do, they, you know, instead of sometimes with, with clients who are very, um, uh, stuck in words and and uh, negative thinking. Instead of doing a sort of list of negative automatic thoughts, I'll do. I'll send them home and get them to uh, write and notice and write a list of joys, and they kind of think, "Oh, it's just so easy," but they quite enjoy that, and and I'm able to see what you know. It's it's uh, therapy that extends between the sessions because they're you know it's just a little a little window. Are there particular stuck points that you find come up over and over and over again? The content may differ, but are there certain themes that stuck points tend to coalesce around uh, with these folks that you see and come to recognize? I know when I work with military or you know some very identifiable group, when I can convey that I have a sense of probably what their internal experience is, it goes a long way to building the rapport. Like, okay, yeah, this guy gets it, he understands. What kind of insights do you have or try to bring to bear maybe to convey that you understand the creative's internal experience or ecosystem? I think their child, their background, which I can't go wading into straight away, but when that reveals itself, it often is, and I think I alluded to at the beginning of our talk, being the bard in the family or the artist or the sensitive one or the, you know, the annoying one or the, you know, the, there's that sort of slightly internalized identity. So it's worth touching on that in a kind of maybe just in a slightly psychodynamically looking at how, you know, how, where they are with their um, uh, beliefs about themselves. And of course, in getting down, I do work with the incredibly powerful tool of CBT and get down to their negative core beliefs, which is usually, you know, same old thing. I'm not good enough. I'm not loved enough. My parents didn't, you know, um, and therefore, I need to create marvelously. I need to, you know, because they're not, they're, they have a lot of hyper-focus artists and, and performers and high achievers, but it's often compensatory, um, but not always. Um, and they're also trying to do something with the poor tools that, uh, that um, you know, that any life gives us, you know, trying to heal all the broken places. I started playing music in roughly around grade seven. And at that time, it was really just sort of the innate joy of it, right? It's like, oh, I want to be able to do this that I hear on that tape and you know, all, all that kind of tape. I'm dating myself, of course. What's a tape, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> all, all that kind of stuff. And then at some point, I felt like it got corrupted into this kind of performative kind of undertaking where it was a way to get prestige within a group or get attention or find a mate or, you know, like all those kind of kinds of things. And I think at, at mid age, one of my journeys has been to decorrupt 
music for myself so that I can enjoy it without it having to have a performative kind of component to it that's more ego driven and maybe a little bit more surface. Is that a journey that you find some of these clients on where it's like, okay, what, why am I doing this? Do I actually enjoy this anymore? Is it so people can see it? Is it so people can hear it? Would I do this on a desert island if no one was around? I think that's a really interesting kind of conundrum when you end up commodifying one of your passions in a sense. It's like what's left over after that. So I'm, I'm curious, do, do you hear people struggling with that a little bit? Yes, very much so. And some people who have left their profession behind, particularly after the last three years, you know, and, and singers were very hard hit. Singers and ballet dancers, you know, that all those awful ads on the NHS, uh, my next job will be a so-and-so NHS, but whatever it was in the British government. Um, and singing singing became a real um, easy target when COVID started because of the super spreader choirs. But, you know, when we don't sing, um, so many, it's like the old the old story of the monks who used to sing and, and then didn't, and then they all got very sick and they realised they'd stopped doing Gregorian chant and, you know, that, that healed them. And so, so some clients have left behind their... Um, their creative life, thinking, that's it, you know, I was so poor that I'm just going to, you know, go and make money and be really sort of determined. And then they end up in the therapist's room with, I don't know, any number of uh, illnesses. Um, and and I wonder about this connection, if, if, and I believe it is, music and creativity is essential to our health. We wouldn't have created something quite so beautiful. Aesthetics in general, um, it can be the natural world. It can be the the joy of looking at, I love looking at gymnasts and, and uh, athletes, track and field athletes. I just love that. Um, you know, then, you know, why would we have, why, why would this have become a thing if it wasn't actually for our, our universal use and benefit? Um they live a smaller and smaller life without the arts, or they are being ruined by this almost uh, addictive state. It's a little too strong, but um, they often they're like drug states. Music can be. We know it. It uh, it entrains you know a whole cocktail of chemicals when we're performing, um, and so learning how to enjoy the drug without feeling hooked and. And I think part of that is developing a personal life what in whatever shape that may be. Um, because in particular, my own exp- experience, the voice can be very fragile. Um, and, you know, I work with singers whose voices are aging or they're giving them trouble or they have some physical ailment that's stopping them from, you know, it's a very, it's a very, it's, yeah, it's a very fragile instrument. I heard uh, Chris Martin during COVID say something to the effect of it's been really sobering not being able to be in front of, you know, 60,000 people really makes you wonder who you are uh, without that. I'm just wondering for you personally, you as someone who's who's been on stage many, many times, I'm sure that's part of your identity or has been a big part of your identity. Do you miss it? How do you scratch that? It's like, where does it sit in the mix at this particular time for you? Look, I, I, people ask me, you know, are you going to perform this year? And I go, unless it's something really I just can't say no to, you know, because it takes a lot of preparation. It's pretty athletic. You have to live like a nun. And I don't like either of those um, disciplines to get there to those states. Um, but, yeah, um, it, it is a I often wonder 
why I don't feel particularly at this age, but I think it was hitting the for me as a woman. I think it was the menopause, perimenopausal years, where there were just so many bizarre things happening, and and this lacuna of information, which you know, that's more that's another that's a whole other podcast um, about that. Um, this and this the necessity to go inward and maybe starting my own Jungian psychoanalysis, that's really, that was really helpful in being able to gently and gracefully unwind the, um, the profession uh, whilst not closing the door. And because I'm working, I still do some consultation with singers. Um, that's, you know, you get a, it's, it's lovely to hear voices. I love the human voice. I love it. Uh, I, yeah. My grandmother and my mother had beautiful soprano voices, really clear, uh, gentle, warm voices. So, you know, I, I'll never not love that. And I love the sound of the violin and the cello for the same reason. I love melody. Um, uh, so some of you too stuff I like, but not all, <laughs> for instance. Well, I think what's so cool about the human voice, particularly the singing voice or even the spoken voice really is that it doesn't have to be sort of a virtuoso performance to really grab you. Like I wouldn't say Neil Young necessarily is like the best technical singer, nor Lou Reed or some others, you know, Tom Waits or things like that. But the, the, the emotion, the grit in the voice is what, is what pulls you in. Also, it's the performance, I guess, maybe. Yeah, and the, the sound of it, the feel of it, and the, maybe even Nina Simone, like that, she was a pianist, self-professed, not a not a um, singer, and yet the sound of her voice just gets me. But the singers you've mentioned, funny enough, even though I don't really not really follow of their music, Chris Martin and Coldplay and and Bono and Pavarotti, they've all got something. I I throw in there people like. Um, um, George Michael, the late George Michael from like Wham's music or the music he made after that, particularly. Um, pardon my ignorance, but um, but I loved his voice. It has a just a certain quality, but you know, that's very that's very um, subjective. You know, it's a subjective preference. But there's just something about a clarity of voice. I, I tend to like higher voices. You know, the French call that the jouissance of the. It's sort of a little thrill you get from a, the higher voice, but it's a warmth as well. It's funny. I just saw Depeche Mode on the weekend in Montreal. I love them. I met them once. Oh, really? Wow. Party in London. Yeah, they're they're friends. One of the guys is friends with my cousin in London. So yeah, oh, they're fantastic. One of the things I was going to say is that, you know, there's essentially two vocalists in the band. There's uh, Martin Gore, who writes a lot of the music. He does a lot of the backup vocals. And David Gaughan, who everyone would know is the, the lead man. And certainly Martin Gore has a wonderful voice. But then when you hear David Gaughan come, ba come back in and sing, you're just like, ah, okay, that's, that's the next level X factor that's built in there that you just, there's just something to it that makes them Depeche Mode. And they, I don't know if they would be Depeche Mode if it was Martin Gore, who was the singer. Then they probably clued into that at some point as well. Yes, I wonder. That interaction of things, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, it, again, that's completely subjective on my part, but that I was really struck by that. Yeah, I share your passion on that one. Okay, so although we're a CBT-focused podcast, uh, we're, and I mean maybe me, <laughs> are also big fans of uh, Jungian concepts, depth psychology. I can't read enough James Hollis in particular. In the lead-up to this podcast, you had mentioned that you also resonate with that framework as well. What speaks to you about this particular way of looking into the, the psyche, life, the human experience? I think, because we're talking about states of transcendence, that's what I was looking at in my, my thesis, and that's what I've experienced on stage. I think it's this transcendent function that the Jungians talk about, you know, they, this psychic process of that mediates opposites. 
that's able to, to, you know, both things can be true. You tolerate the tension of the opposites. So our, our egos confront and have a conversation with, um, you know, in the, in the unconscious. So this link between real and imaginary, rational and irrational, you know, and, and that kind of consists, and, and, the, and this sort of psychic process consists in um, fantasy and dreams and music and peak experience. So, yeah, learning to hold the tension of the opposites, to tolerate ambivalence. You know, I think this is, might sound heretical, but I think there's quite a few things that I learned in CBT training that have a lot in common with some things that you're always talking about. Just maybe you repurposed a lot better um, as, as better tools, but um, not all. So, yeah, I, I would say, it, of course, the collective unconscious, because that's an interesting thing as a performer, because you you, you literally experience that. And, and I think um, there's also some neuroscientific research that I won't go into that speaks to um, the um, the mirror neurons, yeah, um, the states of, you know, through the, yeah, visuospatial neurons that the, that the um, that's how audiences appreciate performers. But... But the collective unconscious and this connectedness at a time um, of uh, as a trauma vortexes, to, to use the term that Donald Kelshed recently has been talking about, the state of things in the world at the moment, wars, uh, climate disasters, um, you know, polar, increasing polarizing of opinions, um, mechanization of almost everything um, to remember that. So uh, not projecting our not projecting our darkness out there. If we own it in ourselves, I think it's 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 got to be a first point of call for doing something better in the world. You know, level of the one person. I love what you just said there, and I I, I think there's something so true to that. I think I don't know if we, I don't know if actually if we ever had it. We, I think we tend to look back at sort of good old days with rose-colored glasses. I'm not sure. You know, we were more conscious. You know, 50 years ago, but it seems like the average person who I encounter is so defended so unable to tolerate dissonance within themselves. And, and like you said, we all have darkness within us. And if we can't integrate it into ourselves, we displace it, we split it, we put it out into other people, we project it out into the world. It's like, oh, people are selfish, they're a-holes, you know, this, that, and the other thing. It's like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's look in the mirror and see what we're adding to the equation, what we're adding to the dance. And I think that capacity to um, be flexible in seeing ourselves is, is really missing and, and something we need to... Um, deploy broadly <laughs> within our various societies. I don't know that that's that's very aspirational, but I, I was I think validated to hear you say that because I've been I've been wondering that for a while. Yeah, and I and I but I think it's what therapists do an awful lot of all the time, bring people back to to looking inwards at what they're what they're not, you know, what they're defensively displacing. But also it's interesting you, see, you talk about dissonance because it's such a musical term. You know, we so many things are sound and music terms, distance, frequency, pitch, timbre, you know, silence, um, all these things, not darkness, not so much, but you know, it, it, it's yeah, it's tolerating distance. You know, a lot of a lot of I did a lot of con, um, contemporary modern opera, and you know, actually liking that stuff is challenging at times when you've got a hankering for folk tunes, as I do. <laughs> Has uh, has shadow work been something that you've explored either for yourself or that you do a lot with clients, or how does that concept even resonate with you? I guess. 
Um, depends on the client and what's in the background a little bit. Uh, you know, because I'm a counsellor, so I you know supposedly deal with mild to moderate presentations of, of issues. That doesn't happen in reality most of the time. Um, in fact, when I was doing my training, one of the last sessions I had was a woman who'd been referred through a music helpline, um, which, you know, that was, that was fine. That was my expertise, so fine. And I uh, was on Zoom during the pandemic, and I, uh, this woman was uncommunicative, shut down, very dark, strange as. I thought, how am I going to get through this? Would unresponsive to any of my wonderful interventions that have been going so well up until then. And um, and then I suddenly remember she had a um, mental health, permanent mental health order. Uh, diagnosis on specified, uh, you know, schizoid and borderline clearly, but, you know, um, and then I, I suddenly remembered it, she'd come through the music helpline. I thought, okay, I'm out, of, I'm out of tricks here. Nothing's working, particularly not on zoom. Um, I said, okay. And she's got six sessions. It was interesting. Um, I said, could, would it be wrong to ask you to play me one of the songs you've written? And, you know, her son had been taken away from her um uh because she was unable to care for him and she lit up like a christmas tree and proceeded to play perfectly on guitar and sing the sound of her voice was so ravishingly beautiful her face her whole face her whole demeanor changed and she was coherent she was beautiful she was whole in those songs and that was enough to get us through to the end of the session. And I thanked her. And we, and I continue, you know, continued to see her a few things and I referred to some more appropriate, but she was getting the, the help in, in other quarters. She had a psychiatrist and mental health worker. And I, that really taught me something. It really taught me something about the, the um, remembering what music is for. Um, but I was, at that time, I was sort of in my rookie status. I was, I was dissociating music and, um, uh counseling and actually you know they they intertwine your skills intertwine they have to because you bring yourself to any encounter and and i think i i briefly alluded to um this is way too many anecdotes so please feel free to cut but i briefly alluded to that the value of music in my own life and um in extreme situations um i remember when my mother um, was very, very ill. She'd had an aortic dissection and she was in ICU, or the step to HCU, I think it is. And um, she had a kidney infection when I was visiting her. And um, so she was mildly delirious, but a very, otherwise very cognitively together woman. Um, and she wouldn't behave and wear her CPAP mask. So, um, and the nurse says, you've just got to, you've got to get her to take that CPAP mask. And I thought, I can't, you know, she just won't, thrashing about. And, and she says, I'll put it on if you sing. I said, well, mum, we're in, it's HCU, we can't sing in here. There's, you know, a man across the, across the bed, you know, with a lung transplant and young guy in his 40s. I said, I can't sing here. It's not possible. And the nurse passed and she said, you can, just, just draw the curtain and don't sing too loud. Um, and she didn't know what kind of singing I did. And all I could think of at the time was, I can't possibly sing because I hadn't warmed up. My, my, you know, I'd been, you know, my eyes were full of tears and nose full of, you know, blocked up, and I thought it's going to sound terrible, and I've got no accompaniment. And I said, "What'll I sing, Mum?" And she said, 
if you're very specific, consider she's in delirium, laudate dominum. I said, okay, by Mozart, you know, for kind of boy soprano and choir. And it was a special piece that we'd sung at weddings and things. Um, so there I sang badly, um, laudate dominum, to the best of my ability, in a high dependency unit in Dublin, Ireland. And afterwards, she recovered that time and she remembered it, which was really strange to me. So I often wonder <laughs> where the delirium ended. But um, And she said, funny, I had a talk with the guy across the bed with a lung transplant. He was crying when you were singing after you left. And I said, and I, she said, so I asked him, why was he crying? And he said, because I didn't expect to hear music in a place like this, because in, a, in high dependency, you don't know if you're ever going to leave. And then it's like, why can't there be angels in hell? Like, why why, why we separate these experiences? Um, yeah, that's setting off all sorts of associations about Dante. And um, But so, you know, it's that, it's that sort of the things that we don't expect might just save us. Some some voice of badly sung Mozart in a in a high dependency unit. So that taught me to be less um, uh, precious. Yeah, that's a, that's a really beautiful anecdote. And I've seen you know the most hard boiled dudes that you can imagine. The bagpipes will bring them to their knees every every time because it you know bagpipes. Yeah, because it's it's, wow. it's integrated into a lot of the repatriation ceremonies. So when a body returns or you know, think things like that. So that is so it's like they have permission in that moment. The the musical cue gives them permission or or activate something or all all of the above is to 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 be able to express that which you can just can't get to with conversation. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. One thing I want to ask you about, I, I believe you had done some work on this. I, I'm particularly fascinated about the midlife passage. I mean that's that's something that I find myself squarely Staunchly in the middle of this particular time, 47 years old. Start of, Pete, at the start of the, you are. The start of, yes. <laughs> let's, be op- let's be optimistic. Wow, what a, what a challenging time. And, you know, it's like it, that old saying, right? Like the first half of life is biography and hopefully the second half is autobiography. Oh, I love that. But, you know, because Jung said life really does begin at 40. Up until then, you're just doing research. <laughs> so I think is yeah. I think that's exactly it, right? I mean, you you have these sort of starter packs of what will make you happy that you pull from culture and cues around you, parental expectations, so on and so forth. And you get to a certain point, you're like, do I like anything that I've really accumulated here? And some of it stays and some of it has to go You have to, to you know, in order to move forward. So yeah, what, what are your thoughts on the midlife passage, either personally or professionally? I'd, I'd be so fascinated to know, you know how you thought through that particular idea. Personally and professionally, I think it's the, you know, you know, the um, sometime into the woods. I, I think we come, so many, particularly female uh, clients come and they're at this dark place in the woods and, you know, don't know which road to take. Uh, and I, you know, have to quickly remind them that the, the trek up was was slow and now you're at a plateau overlooking everything and at midlife, but the way down is quite fast and you need all, all the strength you get. And I, and I guess if we, to use a theatrical metaphor, this, if the, you know, the rest was rehearsal and maybe act one, act two, we are firmly in act three and act four. It's really showtime. This is when the whole denouement happens. Um and, you know, issues get louder, sometimes in the form of physical symptoms. Um, but I, 
you know, I, sort of thrown back on the old Ericksonian um, generativity versus stagnation, heading towards integrity versus despair. It's, it's we've got work to do in this act. This is the really important time. And yet, you know, there's so much grief for the loss of use. We're in a really youth-obsessed, uh, you know, in, in Western culture, we're just youth-obsessed. And we're going, but this is the best. I was lucky enough to have a mother and aunt around me that said, 50s are the best time for women. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just say that because you'd got rid of your husbands, you know, and your, <laughs> and your kids were grown. But, you know, we had kids later. And um, and I think it's really, that's, it, it, it. for me, it has proved true over time. The 40s, mm, that's the bottom of the U-shaped curve, all right, for particularly uh, for women. And then there's a whole, yeah, as I said, alluded to before, the lacuna of uh, conversation about uh, about the loss of estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone. My mother was a doctor working in women's health, and I didn't know anything about it. You know, she was sneakily, and that we, there are several reasons for that happening. So, the, the pitiful kind of characterization of that being normal of women mm-hmm. losing their minds. I mean, that it really beggars belief, and I have to. A husband by forces, to use a patriarchal term, <laughs> to um, to not say more, you know, on that. So I think, you know, beyond if we need it and are able to take um, hormone replacement therapy for men or for women, but particularly for women because it's so uh, abrupt and so multifactorial. There's so many symptoms that can go wrong because we have estrogen um receptors all over our body, but particularly in our brains. And we don't tend to think of the, um, you know, the, this idea of libido in a, in a Jungian sense, this lust for life, motivation, you know, and it's it's almost textbook um, when I, you know, and, and, the, and women don't realize that it starts from about 38, goes through the 40s. And that's, you know, that's a long time to be without um, essential, essential oil in the car, shall we say. Um, for men, it may be a slower decline, but there's often a kind of a malaise or a disenchantment with men, which is that's that's peculiar to to them sometimes. So, um, so if the real work of life is lifelong, um, that's what excites me about Jung as well. That that we're dealing with the second half and that it has a purpose. Um, well, that suits my uh, agenda, but but it also I think it's real. Um, then we so this sometimes means we have to refine old creative outputs, you know, to um, to reenchant ourselves with awe again, like like we were when we were children, um, but it, this time in the face of our own finitude or, or in fact that we we are going to end. That's a very powerful uh, thing to have to do. But on the plus side, though, um, speaking of, of Myers Briggs, our tertiary function develops in middle age. So for me, um, it's a thinking function. So I've got more logical, thank goodness, to, for some people. And what's it for you, Pete? Mm. INTJ. Mm, your your. Um... I probably need to be more irrational. <laughs> more flexible is probably the direction I need to head in. I forget now, but um. Yeah, but it, you know, it's your. Uh, we're both sensate inferior in that case. So that's that's been the work of my lifetime to deal with things as they are. I love things as they might be, but you know, so that's uh, you know allowing allowing room for inferior functions. I really feel if I reflect, I, I could. I mean, God, I could go on for for hours about some of the things I've been contemplating. But I mean, if I distill out the recent thoughts, it's been a lot of 
how can I say that? And I mean this not invalidating my own experience, but relinquishing a series of childish fantasies and turning them in for workable realities that are a lot more rich, grounded, self-actualizing. I think I used to thrive a lot off hope and potential. I look at my children and they have, you know, they're, they're teenagers and they have so many hard things to go through. And they also have so many interesting things and cool things that are yet to happen. And it feels like midlife is a foreclosure on some of that omnipotential that that is available to us. Putting away of childish things. Yeah. Yeah. For what it's worth, that's my brief meditation at this point in the journey. I still have a a long way to go, but it's, I think I've had sort of that proverbial dark night of the soul where it's like, it's like your ego melting down and you're like, what's, what's motivating me here at this point, right? Like what, why, what's keeping me in the game? And I think I can feel things reemerging, but you do, I think have to melt down one one version in order to transform. You got to kill off the deadwood to get to something else. Yes. I think. Yes. And it's not that the stuff actually goes away. You, you could hear, I find time has a funny, uh, a funny feeling in, in midlife. Um, you know, old loves in my teens and twenties seem closer now than they, they did 10, 15 years ago. So something funny happens there. I love the fact when you talk to old people, they just want to talk about the past it used to annoy me a lot with my own mother, but I now realize what that's about the revisiting of nursery rhymes and things. And, you know, uh, and, oh, that just, I, I, I wrote down um, a little snippet of the, the little Gidding by T.S. Eliot. Can I, can I read it? Of course. You're very indulgent people. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, this is just a snippet of, of it. And, you know, it, it gets, it gets repeated a lot, but it's, it's worth rehearing to, referencing what we're saying about this coming coming together and all things passing away. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time through the unknown, unremembered gate when the last of earth to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall. And it's, it, just, it just blows me away sometimes, poetry. In fact, my kids say, mom, please don't tell us poetry because you'll start crying. <laughs> okay, fine. At ease. <laughs> yeah, that's a very moving passage. And it's yeah. I hear a lot of hero's journey in that, that sort of archetypal Joseph Campbell journey through, the, through those various things. Like you, you leave only to find yourself again at the very beginning. Yeah, but different though, because this time we know. Transformed. Yeah, transformed. Transcended. Yes. Well, Fiona, I have so enjoyed this conversation. It's been super, super uh, interesting and meaningful to me. Uh, I was wondering if you could let the audience know where they can find you if they want to learn more, follow up with you around anything they might be interested in having a chat with you around. Great. Well, um, I have a new website, um, finally. It's Idir Creative Counseling. That's Idir, I-D-I-R, Creative, C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E, Counseling, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-L, ing.com. And we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can easily uh, track that down. Well, I certainly hope this won't be the last time that we get a chance to uh, to chat. We'll have to sort of put our heads together and see what other mysterious and wonderful topics we can uh, worm our way through. But for the moment, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for making the time. I appreciate it. Me too. My absolute pleasure. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. 
Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.